What's up, Mr. Calger? How you doing, man? Good. We were just, uh, just you, talking you, about you actually yesterday in uh, Santa Clara and EBC. Uh-oh. I'm trying to think what the hell it was. Um, Only good things, right? It's, who was? It's probably why I hate ITIL. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yep. So here we go in uh, three, two, one. So welcome to episode, I think it's episode six. I can count that so far. If we get above six, um, if actually if we get above 10, I'm just going to stop counting. We're just going to call it this week's episode. Right now it's kind of like a little kid, right? You count your baby up to about 18 months. You count them in months, maybe even 24 months. But nobody talks about their 48-month-old, or at least we hope they don't. Um, and so this is the six some more mommies groups on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we're going to swaddle episode six up nice and neat and carried on our back and, um, to the, and this is the hot aisle and, uh, I'm Brian Carpenter and I'm Brent Piatti. And today we have with us, Matt Calger, Matt, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. So the, uh, the goal of the show today is basically to scratch the surface and kind of dig into today's topics, which are, um, you know, third platform and mode two, you know, modern application development type stuff. Uh, we're going to discuss NoSQL, which doesn't mean not using SQL. Uh, and we're also going to discuss, discuss you know, traditional uses for SQL and, and message queuing, as well as anything else that falls out of Matt's big brain and onto our podcast. So does that sound good, Matt? Works for me. Awesome. So Matt is a very important character in today's cast. He's basically the only reason why we're here. And uh, so I'd like to introduce Matt. Matt, do you want to introduce yourself or do you want me to talk about you? Uh, I like it when you talk about me. Okay. You well, have that nice microphone and everything. I do. I have a very, I have a, I have a very nice. He has know, a voice for radio. I do. <laughs> I barely. And have a face a, for radio yeah, too. Yeah, that's true. Um, so you know, Matt, the way the way we met was actually at VM. Listen, no, it's EMC World. I'd call it roughly. Is it five years ago? You think? Maybe four or five years no, ago. Uh, it would be. It would be four years ago because I started at EMC four years ago. Okay, so four years ago, uh, we met at EMC World, and that's because. Uh, Tommy dragged me out there. I was a brand new customer and, uh, you were a V specialist at the time, which was a whole new, amazing thing. But the coolest thing about you that I knew about you is that you were VCDX number 52, uh, which meant that you knew everything about VMware. And, and in fact, you actually wrote all of it. That's correct. Right. It, it entirely. Okay. Founding member too. Yeah. Right? Founding member of <laughs> VMware, uh, lots of stock options, all that. That's right. No. Okay. So yes. he's shaking so his head. He's, I'm he's, screwing he's this up, it. Matt. I mean, all I, all I can do is say that, I mean, like I literally have a little, I have a little shrine at home. I light incense. It has a picture of Matt and uh, everything. You about have a hair him. doll. I do. I have a little doll and all sorts of things. And so, um, you know, Matt, why don't you please you tell us how, you know, tell us more about yourself. Tell me what you do today. Tell me how you got to where you are, how you got involved with this whole VCDX thing and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> sure. So, uh, what I do today is kind of a weird Mix. I have a very cool job. I ostensibly I am the uh, the global architect uh, from EMC to VMware. So I'm responsible for sort of the strategic vision uh, and use of uh, EMC products at VMware, and that's all of VMware. So that's VMware IT and R and D and vCloud Air and things like that. Uh, and then I also spend a lot of time uh, working on. Uh, EMCs, uh, how we're going to communicate to the SE organization and to our partners and to our customers about third platform and cloud native applications, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I tend to prefer the word cloud native, but uh, that's VMware's term, not EMC's. Uh, and uh, just doing th- things like education and what does this all mean and how is this different and why is it 
not as scary from a, for a salesperson and why is it really interesting for an SE? So I spent a lot of time doing that too. So do we get to talk at all about how you became an executive at EMC? Sure. If you want to <laughs> bring up a three-year-old joke. <laughs> so when, uh, you know, a lot of times when we do these podcasts, we kind of research who we're talking to and see if we can dig up a little a golden nugget. And this time I, I tasked Brent because I kind of knew you and that you were familiar to me. Right. And so Brent pulls up this thing about the, uh, a VMware and Nutanix spat. And, um, uh, you know, I was explaining to him that in, in, in our eyes, you know, as your friends, you are an EMC executive and how that all came about with, uh, thanks to CRN anointing. It was CRN, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, I, I think it was CRN. Yeah. That anointed you as an EMC executive. Uh, yeah, we won't, we won't dig too much into that old dirt and bring that up. Uh, Brent was a little curious if, uh, when, when somebody was, uh, how do we say it? Evangelizing for that, um, specific product, which was, you know, years ago, that was kind of a, you know, a bad thing at VMware, that conversation with the Federation's kind of changed a little bit now. And they, they do tend to sometimes leave with products that sound a lot like EMC's products. Right. So um, how did that ever end up? Do you even know what the end result of it was? Uh, so what was interesting about that is that the, the quote unquote spat that I had was actually with a, another guy at VMware. Uh, his name is Jad Elzane. Uh, he, he's a, uh, uh, at the time I think he was, uh, an EUC specialist. He lives out in DC and now he's a, a principal uh, architect at VMware and I've, I've known him before that, and we've interacted before that, and he's a really smart guy. And I was just making sort of an offhand comment about, you know, why, why are you recommending a specific product at all uh, to a customer as VMware? Shouldn't you be recommending nothing? Uh, and, and some reporter from CRN thought that this meant that I was an executive and that Jad was a sales rep, which uh, I'm not sure who is insulted more by those descriptions. And I, and, uh, yeah, we kind of know how your relationship with Jad, right? I mean, it's a good relationship. You were it's just a good relationship. Healthy, healthy debate, right? And, and so where that ended up with was uh, I got a call the next day from uh, our esteemed leader, Chad Sakach, and said, well, now you know what it's like to be misquoted in the media. Uh, now you know what it feels like. Be careful. Don't do it again. And uh, Jad got a similar uh, message from like VMware PR that said, Nothing wrong. You're not fired. You're not in trouble. Just don't do it again. <laughs> you're not fired this time. This time. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it was awesome. It was awesome for us to watch. And you're, you're actually very well known for inspiring healthy debate and community. Uh, you know, I think you, you, you love to challenge people for, you know, what's right. And it's, um, it's actually a lot of fun. It's one of the, one of the, one of the main reasons why you're out there so much and uh, have so many things going on in your world and why everybody seems to go, you know, it's like the end of a sentence is, I don't know, but I bet Matt does. <laughs> so Matt, I have to ask though, do, do you know, did the customer end up buying Nutanix? And if so, do they still have it today? You know, I, I, I don't even know who the customer was uh, and I don't know what they ended up buying, but I have to, I'm a, after this, I'm going to go uh, ask Jad. Yeah, just don't tweet it. I okay, we'll keep <laughs> yeah. it between us. Um, yeah, so it, we have a new program here that uh, Josh Bernstein invented called Sushi for Secrets, which is where we can only talk about certain things over lunch. So we can talk about that then. You know, when okay. we're all when we're, when we're all in the Bay Area together, because that'll never happen. So, uh, Brent, you want to go over? Um, you know, what happened today in tech history, as it were? It's a fun little segment we have. Yeah. So again, uh, as always, uh, we, I follow a website called This Day in Tech History. Dot com and today, June 26th, 1974, 
the UPC or Universal Product Code uh, is used for the first time ever um, at Marsh Supermarket in Troy, Ohio. And that first item that was scanned using the UPC uh, was a 10-pack of Juicy Fruit gum. So um, interesting that that was the first thing. Um, but uh, it was actually developed by IBM. I guess there was some uh, – I did a little back research on it, but it was a – it was put out for bid into the into the open market, like who was going to develop this this UPC. Um, but it was developed originally by IBM, a guy from IBM in North Carolina um, in 1971. So, question for you, Matt, is um, in this day of of eight, uh, you know Amazon and buying everything online, what is the last thing that you bought? that required a UPC scan and, and not something that was that was online. Like you literally walked up to the register and they scanned it and it beeped and you paid for it. I, you know, <clears throat> given that they're so ubiquitous these days, I think that it was probably the last time I went to the grocery store, which means that it was yesterday after I dropped off my daughter and I bought a, a Lime Rockstar. Lime Rockstar. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, they, I know have, they have just like the they have the 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 yellow flavored thing, but that's about all I know. Yeah, they, my uh, my grocery store has Lime Rockstar and Pina Colada Rockstar, and I like them both, but I try not to drink the Pina Colada one when people are watching and judging me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing you don't have it here on this, so that we yeah, this is a judgment free zone. Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you know this isn't being recorded or anything. It actually is, and we're, we're going to start eventually putting out video. It may start with you. You never know. So I'm glad you put on clothes for us. We're not sure if you put on pants, but we are glad you put on clothes for us today. Yeah. So, uh, and for those who are on the podcast right now, they're going, man, I wish I could see what he was wearing, but maybe eventually you'll get to see it in video. You can check the site and see if it's out there. So if we want to get down to things, you know, we were talking about UPCs, right? And when you bought that Lime Rockstar yesterday at whatever grocery store you bought it at, it probably went into some big data back end. They probably used your your rewards card or your phone number to track you or your credit card. And they now know who you are and the fact that you love Lime Rockstar. But secretly, they probably also know you love Pina Colada Rockstar. And that, that whole big data app went back somewhere. And somewhere, somebody somewhere has applications written around it that are kind of farming that data out. So that they can advertise to you when the next version comes out. When uh, I can't even imagine something like you know Kiwi Strawberry Rockstar comes out probably send you an email and be like, Hey, it's here. You should come try some. And, um, you know, that, that, that leads into the whole conversation today of these new, uh, cloud native applications, right. You know, and, and what people are having to do and how they're getting this data out and making money off of it. Right. Uh, yes. But first, can I just comment that I just saw Brent drink, drinking a, uh, a Red Bull. Yeah. It, <laughs> Red Bull is, is the Red Bull is the second official drink of this show. Uh, yeah. you know, first being Starbucks. Hmm. Yeah, it is twelve o'clock here in in Phoenix, so um, I definitely need that to kickstart the day. There we go. So back to uh, <laughs> back to cloud native applications, which I you know by the way I really like that that uh, that name too. Thank you VMware for that. And there's a bunch of marketing names around it. Third platform uh, is sometimes called that by EMC and other people. Mode two, which I think is was it IDG or Gartner that kind of created that. Do you know? One of the two, but if you ever suggest that you can't tell them apart, they would destroy you. Yeah, well, they can come on and debate that themselves. It's not that I can't tell them apart. It's just that I can't remember who made that one up. So, you know, we have we have these applications, then we have to get kind of a, a, a different way of using things. Why why is there a mode two? 
Can you tell us kind of a, you know, give us a, you know, again, we're all kindergartners here. We're just kind of, we're kind of, you know, breaking into things. We're trying to learn new things. Why is there a mode two? Why isn't this just the same thing as mode one? So if we think about what do we think about, always think about the, the assumptions that go into a decision, right? Uh, and one of my favorite analogies is, is thinking about the decisions, the, the different kinds of things that came out of NASA in like the 60s and 70s, right? There were, there were different options that they were going to build, right? Sometimes, sometimes what you're going for is let's just, let's just beat the Russians, right? That was a lot of the 60s for NASA. Um, and it was just, let's just get somebody in space right now. I don't really care what it costs. I don't really care if it's the right way to do it. We're just going to go for speed. End of story, right? So they made a, a trade-off there. It cost a lot of money. Uh, but then the 70s rolled, on, rolled around and we had the oil crisis and, and, and we decided we're, we want to go to space, but we want to do it more cheaply and reliably. And we decided and we built the space shuttle, right? That was an entire, it's a thing that accomplishes going to space, but it does it with an entirely different set of assumptions. And so we built fundamentally different things. That's the same idea here. If we take a public cloud and we assume that public clouds are VMs or maybe not VMs, but uh, some sort of compute network storage that we don't have any direct control over. We don't have any visibility into. We can't guarantee that it's going to be five or six nines. If we take those as our assumptions, which are not the same assumptions that we've made for the past 20 to 30 years, if we make those assumptions, what would we build in our applications? We would move some things that have traditionally been infrastructure services like high availability hardware and and clustering across hosts like what VMware does and high availability storage and things like that. And we would say, all right, if those are no longer part of our inputs, where are we going to build that same kinds of things? We're going to build fundamentally different applications that are designed for the cloud and are therefore cloud native. So was there was there a cloud native or an... I mean, we all know that a lot of this is kind of predicated on what Amazon's built for people, right? They kind of said, "Hey, we're going to do we're going to do web services." I'm sure Azure was out there at some point. You know, who who was first and things like that could all be talked about for you know ad nauseum. But is a lot of this a result of the platforms that were became available to people? In other words, um, you know, we built this type of thing, so people started writing towards it, or was there a need for it that that people like Amazon or like the rack spaces? Um, and even what NASA was doing with OpenStack to a point where they were going, man, we really have these problems. We need to solve it with some sort of different type of platform and different type of usability. So I, I think that they, I think that they were solving problems that they had that were nobody else had, right? So Amazon and Google and 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 some of the others like NASA, Walmart, they had fundamental needs for a different. Um, for for achieving things on a different level of scale and cost, and so for the Amazons in the world, they had to you know they they had to build many of these tools for themselves internally to operate at the scale that they were thinking about, um, and so they had these problems first. They solved these problems, and then they realized that hey. We've just built this thing that has a lot of intrinsic value. Yes, we're a bookstore, but nonetheless, this has value. Let's see if we can make any money off of it. Uh, and then as those needs and the benefits that those needs brought um, 
started to percolate further into the world, right? Amazon was probably one of the first to need many tens of thousands of machines running entirely different code. But as things like Uber and, and the other sort of canonical examples that we tend to bring up happened, more and more people and places had those needs. And so they started to use the platforms that Amazon had created. So I think that there's, I don't think that these were necessarily a response to a generalized market need. They were a response to a specific internal need that became available to others. And so uh, following on that, kind of the, one of the things we really wanted to talk about was uh, today, you know, I, I asked you, you know, come, come teach me something that I don't know a lot about. And we've been talking long enough that you've, you've distilled, you've instilled tons of your knowledge on me, you know, different things that, you know, P3 types things, uh, you know, whatever's going on at Pivotal and things like that. But where the back end, right, this whole um, no SQL type environment and all those kind of things were things that we really haven't talked a ton about. Um, and actually, we're working on uh, trying to get Matt maybe reconnected here. But, um, you know, Matt, did, where do we lose you there, buddy? Uh, right when I stopped talking, pretty much. Pretty cool. So what I was transitioning to is, um, you know, essentially, we're looking at these no SQL type environments. And I was, you know, we've talked a lot about different things that are available to us. And, you know, we, I asked you to kind of bring something new. That no SQL type situation is something where, you know, w you know, where does it benefit these um, cloud, you know, these cloud native applications? Again, why was no SQL created? What problem was it solving originally? Kind of who was driving to solve those kind of things? Um, you know, differentiators, you know, the whole open source thing, you we can go wherever you'd like with that. Sure. So, you know, the, the thing that I would focus on is if you ask many people, depending on when they started in the sort of the NoSQL community, they will say either it stands for literally, we don't do SQL, no SQL. Um, the, the other more common one these days is not only SQL is what it stands for. So there are other ways to store data and think about retrieving data other than the traditional SQL way, right? And SQL enforces or expects SQL itself is a language, but the databases that it's usually used with um, sort of guarantee a certain subset of things like uh, atomicity, uh, consistency, integrity, and when, I don't remember what the D stands for. These are the ACID uh, requirements. But if some of those become less important to us uh, because other things are more important, well, then we're going to make different decisions. It's that same discussion we had just a second ago about NASA, right, and what they chose to do. So if all of a sudden what I'm trying to do is not care about doing complex left joins on my data, if all I really want to use is a database, I want to use it as a thing that stores a value that I can get back whenever I want, right? We would call that a key value store, right? Here, Here's... Here's my here's my user ID as the key, and the value of that is my name. Something super simple like that. If you if you think about how many people and many products these days use databases, many of them use just that feature: store something with a key, give it back to me later. Right? Many of them aren't doing joins or anything like that. If you look at the vast majority of what something like WordPress does, for example, you know it doesn't do a lot of really complex SQL kinds of things. So if that's what you're going to build, you're, wouldn't it behoove you to not use a tool that's, wouldn't it behoove you to use a tool that's designed from the ground up to do that? And so, you know, some of the examples of key, uh, key value stores out there are things like um, 
Uh, Redis is an excellent example uh, of a in-memory key value store. Uh, let's see here. Um, uh, React uh, from Basho is a pretty good example of a, of a pretty nice key value store. And, and they have fundamental different designs. Like React is this whole really clever corded ring architecture that's very fault tolerant and stuff like that. And Redis is a totally in-memory, mostly single box kind of solution. Uh, but they both fundamentally serve the same purpose of providing a semi-durable key value store. So the whole idea of, of these modern databases is that there are times in which a different way of thinking about your data results in needing to make different choices about how you store that data. So something like Redis and its key value stores or something like Neo4j, which is a graph database, which focuses on the interactions between different uh, entities within a database. And then even some things that are document stores like MongoDB, which are all about storing large documents, which is something that SQL has never been good at. So you, we, <clears throat> we make these choices based on the kinds of demands that our applications have. Uh, and we gain some ability, we gain something there, whether it's ease of management or greater scalability or greater performance or something like that. So, Matt, I'm hearing that there, there are a lot of choices depending on what you want to do. Um, if it's relational, key values, um, is there anything out there today that, that gives you, I guess, more choice, right, in one single platform? Or are they, do they have to be developed like independently as different things? I think that's a fair question. You know, the, your question is kind of, is there a jack of all trades and master of none? Uh, you know, I, I think the thing that comes closest to that is probably Postgres. Um, you know, the nice thing about Postgres is it, it's open source. Uh, it's reasonable. It, it can enforce the ACID semantics for you uh, if you want to, and it can do all the traditional SQL stuff. But it also has some interesting abilities, like there's a, there's a HTTP and JSON interface for Postgres that lets you query it like you were going to query MongoDB or something like that. There, it has some capabilities to do some reasonably performant, uh, like key value kinds of things. So, you know, if I was going to pick just something that I was like, gee, I really don't know what I need. I need some some reasonable amount of flexibility. I'd probably pick Postgres. Postgres. Okay. Cool. Yeah, it, you know, I had a buddy just email me, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, and he, he had seen an article on uh, MarkLogic. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of MarkLogic at all? I have. What's, uh, what's the story behind that, and, and uh, should we care? Um, you should care. They have some really interesting uh, performance stuff that they're doing recently. Um, uh, if I recall, MarkLogic is actually really popular in the Fed space. Um, yeah, they've got so um, some of their customers are healthcare.gov. Yeah. Um, and they they said the BBC and then some some top five investment bank, but um, the investment bank stuff was actually pretty cool because the the amount of of transactions and um, you know, that, that that they're going through and holding was was pretty high. Um, they were doing yep. a good job of of taking care of that. Yeah, I think MarkLogic is, is actually really interesting. Um, they are, they're interesting in that you know, many of the existing ones that you think of, like uh, 
like Redis and, and Gemfire and things like that tend to tend to have come out of an open source space and therefore focused on that particular subset of people first. Um, Market Logic definitely came from a different angle and focused on uh, enterprise and and .gov uh, workloads first. And you know, I think we've seen in the industry that that you know, even if you're not that differentiated from the rest of the space, simply coming towards, uh, simply aiming at a very different set of the market can help you grow. I mean, I, I think I'd honestly argue. I think that's a lot of what, uh, for example, SolidFire has done in the storage space. They aim themselves at a very specific part of the market, the service provider space, and made solid inroads there where many of the others haven't. Uh, simply because they have different sets of needs. And so I think that's something that Mark Logic has done very well, uh, is make themselves useful and to some degree the only player for a, a significant part of the market. Okay. So if we were to compare um, you know, these, these NoSQL databases, like something like Cassandra or Mongo, um, do they have some of the same, I guess, terminology that, that we're used to in, like, you know, say, the, the SQL server world, like, TempDB, log files, um, and database files, or is it completely different? Um, and, and then also, how do you how do you replicate these things, and how do you protect them? Like, is there is do you need to back these up? Like, if you have a horizontally scaled um, you know database, and it's got multiple hundreds of instances, mm-hmm. right? Do you do you need to back that up, or is it okay? Like, kind of on its own. Sure. So I, I think to go back to your first question is how much do they have in common with traditional databases? I think that varies by the design of the database, right? If you look at something like Postgres, very, very, very similar. If you look at something like Redis, however, Redis is an entirely in-memory database. So there are no temp DBs. There's nothing to do. It doesn't even have the concept of a join, right? It's give me the give me the value for this key. And it's guaranteed to never be larger than your memory. So... You know, do, is that really a, uh, it, that's a very different paradigm. And then there's some of them like, for example, MongoDB, which are much more document focused. And then something like Neo4j, a graph database, which has no concept of something like a join. That doesn't even make any sense in that context, right? So do you, well, to varying degrees, depending on how close they are to a traditional ACID compliant database, they may or may have some of these things, like most of them, you know, have many of them have some sort of like log structured output to handle consistency and things like that. Um, but most of them, many of them, will not have temp DBs uh, or things like that. Um, as far as as far as replication, that is very very wildly all over the place. Uh, there are some, you know, like uh, Cassandra. And React are, are very, very, very well known for their capabilities in replication. They are very, very, very good at it. Um, and but then there are some like Redis, for example, that is generally used as sort of a almost a caching layer to some degree, uh, and that makes it very memcached like. Uh, and there are many people who just don't even care about what's in their Redis database. It's merely a cache layer for them, and so they don't they don't even try to replicate it. Um, and, and I will say, even Redis replication is even um, not even that uh, it's not even that complex, right? It's it's relatively limited. So, 
it, I think that depends on, on your use case and, and the nature of the database itself. And then backing it up is, is a similar story. You know, it depends on what you're using your backups for. Many times people use their backups as a way to recover from hardware failure. Okay? That may be why you have backups. But if you're running a Cassandra database that is a thousand nodes in the Cassandra ring, why would you bother? Right? A, a failure in that scenario is a complete non-issue. Re um, uh, the website Reddit actually runs a very, very large Cassandra ring as a part of their, their back end. And they say that they have, a, they have a Cassandra node failure every day. And it's just a complete non-issue to them. They don't back it up uh, because they trust in the ability of Cassandra to heal itself. Now, other people use backups for different purposes. Like, for example, what if I accidentally delete some data, right? No amount of replication saves you from RMRF star, right? So... In that case, sometimes people do, in fact, back these things up. Sometimes people rely on some sort of internal versioning within the database. So the database perhaps might, when you delete a, delete a key, it might say, well, I, I know you wanted to delete that key, but actually you're an idiot, and I'm just <laughs> going to keep it around for like 30 days. Uh, so that methodology is not common. And then there's some people who say, look, I trust my application, and while the database could delete something for me, I will just only ever add things. Um, so, again, it depends on your use case and, and the nature of your data. And then there are people who actually just straight up fully back them up. Like, I've seen people with Mongo databases that have large numbers of documents that they actually just do back it up, like a traditional backup mechanism. And so it sounds like a lot of choice, lots of... Um it's like, a, it's like a, a toolbox full of different tools, right? You've got to pick the right tool for the right job. Today, there's not that kind of you know, panacea, um, certainly in, in the NoSQL space, because they're, they're all very different is what I'm hearing. They're uh, all the very different. And what I would say is this. You know, when, I was in, when I first got out of college, right, I bought myself a toolkit. And it, had, it was like one of those things from Costco that had like 57 different tools. Um, you know, I'm talking about the count each socket as its own tool. Oh, yeah, tool. yeah. Yeah, uh, 50, 50 tools seems pretty small. I think anymore they're like you know two and three and five hundred. Right. So I had this little fifty tool thing, and that was good enough for somebody that didn't have a house, didn't have a car, and just needed to put together some IKEA furniture. Right. But if you then, but you wouldn't then take that same that that fifty piece toolkit that is Postgres. Right. It's good enough for maybe 80% of use cases. But you would not take that same toolbox to a data center, right, and try to rack up servers. You would have a lot of very specialized tools like a server lift and, and special cage nuts and all those kinds of things. You wouldn't use that same toolkit to build a house. So as your scale increases and the problems that you need to solve change, you start to go towards more and more domain-specific tools. And that's that's where we see that choice start to evolve. Is there a is there um, a manager that can can manage multiple NoSQL databases um, that are you know, called heterogeneous? Mm, I would love to be corrected, but not to my knowledge. Okay, nothing that I've. I, th I think we just found a market. I think so. <laughs> yeah, you let me. You let me know. 
there, there are some tools out there that are reasonably good. Like there's a couple of desktop tools that can talk to like one or two key value stores and also Postgres. But there's nothing that I've seen that has any sort of scale that can talk to almost anything. Are there? Is there any? I mean, do these guys use like RESTful APIs or, or anything like that? So uh, there's a potentially to, to do some sort of management layer. Oh, sure. Yeah, the, the issue is not the management uh, itself. The issue is not talking to the box. The issue is representing the kinds of data being stored in a sane way, right? Because the data that you're going to store in a graph database like Neo4j, you probably should display in graphical graph-type format. Whereas the data that you're going to store in a document store like MongoDB, you probably need to display lots of text. So how do you display the same thing? How do you manage, How do you work with both of those um, paradigms at the same time? Is I think the biggest challenge. Fair enough. And that's why even in a lot of different architectures, even specifically converged type architectures, the whole goal of a single pane of glass type thing is extremely difficult. So instead of calling it a single pane of glass, you call it like a, a single point of entry, right? A way to get into something and then go do go about doing all the other things that you're dealing with. Um, because there's so many different things, it's hard to consolidate them into one tool. Um, that goes back to you really just can't make a, a plastic case that you can put 5,000 tools in, right? You get drawers and different sizes of drawers and you end up with a whole garage full if you're really doing it right. So, um, so speaking of all these different tools, Matt, you're talking about react, you're talking about Mongo, all this kind of stuff. Um, well, what a lot of people may not know, maybe some do, especially if you're in the Federation, but, uh, you developed an application, um, and it kind of was like a, a needs based thing, right? A need came. And so you made something And that application is a, essentially you can check all of the different EV chargers around all the different campuses. And that's for electric vehicles to see which ones are essentially occupied, how much charge times left, notify all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious, um, as you were evaluating that, and maybe it, you, I think you even rewrote it once you're on version 2.0 or 3.0 now, what did you use? Why did you pick those kind of things? And what were your considerations as you were doing that? And you know, why'd you do the project overall? Sure. So I did project overall, as you suggested, because of a needs-based thing. Um, about uh, when I started doing the, the thing that I do between EMC and VMware, I started working a lot at the VMware campus. And VMware, if you don't know, has something like 74 electric car chargers on campus, which is awesome. They're all free, which is double awesome. Uh, and I have an electric car. And I realized, though, that while we had 75-something chargers, we had 250 cars. And so there was no way for me to know, like, hey, which – and and there were all of these chargers spread across three different garages. And there was no way for me to know which ones were available easily, like as I was driving up to campus to figure out where I wanted to park. So I wrote this thing that accessed the, uh, the API uh, that could tell me, you know – if a charger was available or not. Um, it's made by a company called ChargePoint. And I built a thing that puts it all into one web page. And the first time I wrote that, I wrote it in Python because it's my personal preferred language for doing rapid prototyping. It's just easy to write in. And uh, I, because I knew it well, I used a Postgres database on the back end. Um, it all ran on uh, Cloud Foundry and worked really well. Uh, but then I wanted to add some new things. Um, 
first, my, my query times from Postgres were actually quite poor. Uh, well, what I consider quite poor, they were, you know, in the 500 to 1,000 millisecond range, which meant that my page took a minimum of like two seconds to display, which was too long for me because I'm really impatient. <laughs> and so, you know, I realized, hey, I thought about what is what am I doing with this data? All I'm doing is writing a value and pulling it back. I'm not doing any joins or, or anything like that. So I thought about what, what is the right kind of thing to use for that? So I said, well, what I really want is a key value store, right? So I rewrote it slightly uh, and switched to using a Redis backend. And my query times went from 500 to 1,000 milliseconds down to about uh, 20 to 30 milliseconds. Simply because a Redis database is, A, always guaranteed to be in memory, and B, is just doing less work, right? But then I realized that I had this really giant application that was cluttered together, right? There was part of it that was sort of like the visual interface, and there was part of it that could send alerts, and there was part of it that collected data, and they were all different threads, and they were all doing different things, and it became really painful to put them all together. And so I realized what I really wanted was I wanted three separate parts, the visualization part, the data collection part, and the alerting part to be separate but using the same database. And that fundamentally is a microservices architecture, right? So instead, what I ended up building was three separate uh, applications that each do one of those things, all accessing the same Redis database, and they talk to each other using a message queuing service uh, called uh, ZeroMQ uh, in order to be able to talk to each other in, in real time. So I took this application that is fundamentally a monolith like many, like many customers have these days, and broke it down into its component parts and was then able to make better choices about back-end services and make it easier to deploy and significantly faster at the same time. And you can actually change one part and essentially not really have to impact all the other parts. Uh, and you know, as long as you can manage the message queuing between the two, you're, kind of in, you're, you're in proper shape to continue operation as it were. I do that all the time. I upgrade individual parts of that application without touching the other ones uh, pretty much every time I do a push. And that's so a- when I worked um, uh, years ago at uh, a company called Progress Software and Data Direct, we started, we started moving into this kind of SOA world, right? So service-oriented architecture, mm-hmm. which um, I think has taken on a new name, which is micro microservices. Um, is that is that true, or am I kind of hacking that uh, those 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 I don't know those methodologies t- to pieces? There are some strong parallels there, um, definitely. Um, you can build you can build a service oriented architecture without um, without doing it with microservices, and you could potentially build microservices without doing it in an SOA ma- way. But you're going to be fighting. You're going to be fighting what you're doing the whole way if you try that, right? So there's a lot of ideas. Uh, there's a lot of ideas there that are related. Um, although I wouldn't say it's 100% overlap. Okay. So explain explain for us a little bit more about message queuing. What is it? Um, where did it come from? I mean, is this the this is the same thing that existed back in the day when I'd go install like MSMQ, uh, you know, on on Microsoft SQL servers? At the time, it was literally just like a 
a required component of some install that you did, right? And you're like, I got to go get CD number 17 of Microsoft SQL Server that has MSMQ on it and go install that for you. Um, but now it seems like it's really a, a, a core component of a lot of these um, cloud native applications or these, um, you, these kind of compartmentalized applications you're talking about. Uh, it is, and it's fundamentally a question of scale. Is, but you're absolutely right. Is this dissimilar from MSMQ? No, it's not. Uh, it's a it's a question of scale. Think, think about it this way: If I were to build an application that you know just you know, let's say I built a web application that just uh, that just pulled for to see if a web page had changed, something super simple like that. Um, you know, the, if I'm checking one web page, that's easy. If I'm checking two, that's easy. If I'm checking two hundred, that gets a little harder. If I need to check ten thousand pages, well, now I need to have more than one machine doing it. Right, so now we need to have like a master that keeps track of the work that needs to be done, and like maybe ten workers, something like that. Right? How do I get those workers to communicate with each other? Well, one way would be to just have a database and have them all just constantly polling that database to see what new work there was, and that's that's a reasonable solution. The problem is that that's not a scalable solution. Uh, I once wrote an application that used a similar methodology. Uh, against Redis, and I was doing 17,000 Redis queries a second just to see if I had any work to do. That's not even doing any work. That's just 17,000 queries a second to see if there was any work to be done. Okay? Because I was running like 100 instances. Uh, instead, what we really want is some way to have all of these machines listening like, like on a chat together. Like, you guys remember back in the day when you could have uh, party lines on landline phones? Mm-hmm. You know, you remember that? Yep. I don't know. Brent, you might be too young. <laughs> no, no. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, would get like, you would get like 20 people on the line, and uh, you could all talk together. A message queue is not dissimilar from that, right? It's, it's a way to efficiently communicate with large numbers of actors at the same time so that you can re- make that a lot easier. So rather than calling each of 20 people to say, Hey, did you hear that Jenny made out with Steve last night? Right. You can say it once on the party line. And Um, is there, are there inefficiencies in that as it gets to scale? I mean, if there's a thousand people listening on the party line and everybody hears about that story or is listening for that story, is there, has there become an inefficiency at any point in that? There can be, but they tend to be dwarfed by the other kinds of problems that happen at that kind of scale. Um, for example, like RabbitMQ, um, which is actually a, a product sold by Pivotal, um, I was just looking it up the other day, can do simultaneously millions of messages a second across 250,000 different queues on a single server. So, yes, there are scale limits, but there are almost never limits that we're going to hit. And if so, you're going to probably design around those limits by you know, creating different types of queues for different things and breaking, breaking work out, um, you know, and maybe even tiering, kind of federating as it were. Exactly. And that's actually one of the common use cases. So one of the common use cases for these queues is a party line kind of scenario where everyone needs to hear the same information. Uh, the, one of the other ones is a, is almost a task distribution kind of thing where there's an announcement on the queue that I have a new task to be performed. And then, 
one of the queue, one of the members on that queue will actually basically take a hold of that task and prevent the others from performing it. And so there's a function inside of message queuing that says you can essentially take a task and in which case notify everybody else or that message is no longer in the queue or that message has been acted upon. That's true for, for some message queues. Not all, not all do that, but some do. That's interesting. Well, and, and so uh, obviously that makes sense in your application. Are there other, are there other practical applications out there? Is there, is there a day-to-day tool that we use? You know, it's on, on our iPhone, on our laptops, anything that, that you know is using message queuing in the background and kind of give us a, a story per se? Facebook chat is probably the easiest one or any chat application where you have a group chat. Um, you know, one of the things that we do is you think about how a Facebook chat works, right? You and me and Brent, we're all in a chat together and I might pull up my phone and it's, it's, um, it's 11 o'clock here Pacific for me. And I type a message and I type it into the chat. Uh, but the chances that, well, the chances that Brian receives that message are probably relatively low because he goes to sleep at nine o'clock because you have like three kids. So, um, what do we do there? We send out this message, but then we need to, we need, what we really want to do is want to guarantee delivery, right? So we need to have some sort of message queuing system that will deliver that message live to Brent because he's online right now. Brent, do you have three kids? I do not. I have one on the way in uh, about five weeks. So there you go. So Brent is well rested and can stay up till 11 o'clock at night. Um, But Brian is exhausted because he has three kids. And so we deliver that message immediately to Brent via the queue. And then the queue is responsible for then later delivering that message to Brian when he comes back online. So this kind of distributed delivery that is guaranteed eventual delivery is actually a really common use case. And so anybody using any form of, of uh, chat like Facebook chat or WhatsApp or something like that is using a message queue every day. Hmm. And see, that's why, that's why it has practical application in life. Even Google Hangouts is using message queuing because I thought they were completely different. Oh, I guarantee you they have a message queue on the back end somewhere. Okay. So, I, I, you know, all that stuff, I mean, it's obviously really... I mean, it's cool stuff, right? No SQL, the architectures are different because of that. Um, message queuing, the things that you can do with that. Um, is there, we kind of talked about it, is there a practical application for traditional, you know, Microsoft SQL, Oracle, these kind of things in these uh, cloud native applications? As You know, uh, is, is there something there for that? Absolutely there is. Um, you know, if you need to do something more complex than just get a key value store, or then get a, key, a key's value, right? If you actually do need to take a bunch of data and manipulate it in some sort of complex way, where where you know this kind of time, this kind of data needs to match up with this other kind of data, and we need to key them together based on username, could you do that in your code? Right? You could keep separate Redis tables for that and do all of that in your code, but then you're doing it in your code and you're introducing the potential bugs and things like that that have actually been solved for 30 years, right? If you're doing the kinds of things that SQL and traditional databases are good at, the things that, the things that relational databases are good at, specifying relations between items, then that's absolutely where you would pick a traditional database. So there's, there's nothing wrong with those databases. We just, just like the rest of them, like a graph database or a column database, which is what... Um, 
Hadoop is. Uh, just like the rest of them, we choose the right tool for the right job. It's just that historically, we've because MySQL and SQL Server and Oracle have been the only thing that is uh, available and usable to most customers, we just shoehorned them into every possible place. Now that we don't have to shoehorn them anymore, we make different choices. And that's, that's why we see a lot of kind of reference designs around, yeah, you have your existing EDW and you can continue to do um, ETL against those, right? And kind of fit into your relational database, index it, get everything you need out of that, but kind of wrapper it up with things like Hadoop where you don't really have to throw any data away. If somebody wants to kind of do a deep and wide search of just text against that, mm -hmm. um, store the results in something like Redis temporarily where you're going to display it in the application. Um, put in a message queue between the different parts of the application so that they can keep each other up to date. Um, there really is, it's, it's an, it, like you mentioned, it's an ecosystem conversation instead of a, a point solution type conversation when it comes to database and, and, and data management in general. Oh, oh ab absolutely. You know, one, of, one of my favorite quotes, um, my, uh, my thesis, the, the guy who ran my thesis in college, I, I was a computer science major, as you can probably guess. Um, was uh, he was the first guy to ever get a computer science degree from William and Mary College, um, and which was one of the first computer science programs in the nation. So he was basically probably one of the first ten people in America to ever get a computer science degree. Um, he wrote the manual for the Apple II, like the basic language. Um, very smart guy, and the argument that he always made to me was that when you're writing code, figure out your data structure first. Figure out how you're going to store and think about your data first, and everything else flows from there. And I think it's the same, the same is true today. If you think about how your data needs to be worked with, you choose a database based on that, and you'll be good to go. So quick question then. Um, <clears throat> so we have you have web scale, web scale applications, and it needs something like a traditional SQL database. How do you how do you um, you know, how do you scale something like that? I mean, we, there's no real notion of, of doing that in a traditional kind of database world. So, I mean, how do you scale? A uh, couple things. Um, if you say web scale again, I'm going to punch you. Uh, two, uh, it it's, can be challenging. Um, at the point where that application is growing to that level of scale might be the point at which you start to break out your data and put it into different, different databases. So you might simply choose not to scale it. Uh, if that's not an option, which it may not be, uh, it's not uncommon to see people put some sort of caching layer in front of that database. So a couple different ways that we see people do that. For example, on like MySQL. If what they're doing is a very significant read load and not a very significant write load, what they'll do is they'll create like maybe 20 replicas of the master database that are being constantly updated. And so all the reads happen from the replicas and all the writes go to the master. So that's how we scale something like that. Um, and and doing, doing replication, read-only replication like that on MySQL or Postgres or, or whatever is relatively simple. Um, okay. if, if we need to go further than that, it's not uncommon to see someone put a caching layer like memcached or Redis or something like that in front of the database to cache commonly used um, objects or responses. Uh, that's a reasonably common pattern. 
Uh, and then some of these databases, um, especially some of the nicer versions of like MySQL, for example, if you look at uh, Percona, uh, Percona's version of MySQL, P-E-R-C-O-N-A, uses a, basically a, a productized commercial version of the combination of MySQL and the Galera replication plugin, which actually lets you create a multiple master style MySQL replica, uh, replication system. Um, and that will scale to, you know, not hundreds, but, you know, maybe less than a dozen nodes, which may be enough for you. So it all depends on sort of the nature of your workload, but those are the three models that I see most often. Okay. So hopefully this next question, you don't punch me. Um, so I won't say web scale again. Yeah. You just triggered him again. I mean, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I won't say it anymore. I don't want to get punched. It's especially virtually punched. Like, no, let's not do that. Um, so how about some crazy stories about, um, you know, just no other databases. It's just, I mean, what, have, what's, what's been the craziest thing you've seen solved in the real world that, uh, was, you know, impactful to a business, a customer, whatever. How about I tell you the craziest thing I broke that was impactful to a business? <laughs> um, before, before I worked at EMC, I, I spent uh, about four and a half years at salesforce.com um, and built a lot of that architecture. And part of what we did was we actually ran the, the, that uh, organization's enterprise data warehouse, which basically held effectively clickstream data for the last 10 years worth of Salesforce. Uh, it was it was a database that was approaching a petabyte all in one database on one Oracle cluster. Wow. Uh, across three separate arrays and a 16-node Dell Oracle cluster. Um, but before that, um, about a year before that, it was still on a big Sun Oracle system, a big Sun E25K. Remember those things, the big giant refrigerators that were like $10 million a piece? Yeah. So yeah, I got that in my all, pocket, dude. Don't worry about that. Yeah. It was, uh, it was one of those. And I was adding some storage, and I did a rescan of the adapter. And on Sun, when you do a rescan of the adapter, what it does is it actually removes everything on the adapter and then rescans it and adds all the devices back. So what I did is I did... Uh, I did rescan the, the equivalent command like CFG ADM, rescan the adapter, uh, and then I meant to do an ampersand, like two ampersands, which on Unix would mean wait until this one is done and then do the next one. Um, uh, what I did was a single ampersand, which meant that do the first one, and as soon as you've started that command, just throw it in the background and do the next one. So what that meant is that I basically had two commands running at the same time that were removing all devices from all HBAs. Woof. Woof. So that proceeded to bring down uh, all of the virtual devices, the PowerPath devices, um, which proceeded to bring down ASM, which proceeded to bring down the database, which, of course, for performance reasons, had been running in asynchronous mode with no transaction logs. I corrupted a approximately at the time 500 terabyte database <laughs> uh, that we had to restore from tape over a single gigabit Ethernet connection. Wow! And you kept your job after that? Barely. <laughs> <laughs> and and look where you are today. And look where I am today. Um, 
that is an excellent example of when you have out when you when your needs and your workload and your data have changed to such a degree that you need to change the database that you're using. We should have been using uh, Teradata or Neteza or something like that, and not a giant Oracle cluster. So the story that I would tell there is that don't let it get to that point where uh, what should have been a small mistake was a truly horrific... Oh, and by the way, I didn't mention, this was a week before our SEC earnings were due. Mm. Well, how long did it take to, to get everything back up and running after that? A week. Oh, that, that would have been a really long week for me. I don't yeah, know how it was, it was for you. For you too. Yeah. A lot of Red Bull or uh, lime-flavored um, <laughs> monsters. Yeah. It, was actually, it was worse for my DBA because she actually had to do the vast majority of the work to restore it. I would have been, I would have been hand-delivering food on, you know, basically on four-hour increments and uh, probably bringing people up to perform you know, foot massage services and you know, chair massages and uh, you know, throwing down a, a, a feather bed so that she may rest between key, you know, clicks in order to say, I'm sorry. We weren't far from that. <laughs> so you told us about this, uh, this massive database that was basically built to fail. Um, what about you know, massive use cases of um, Redis or something else that people have built that just really are mind-boggling from a scale perspective in today's modern architecture, this, uh, you know, this cloud-native apps? Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting examples for just from a raw scale perspective is the guys over at Redis Labs recently um, did a bake-off among the, the major key value stores, so like React and 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 Redis and some and some of those other ones. Those guys were able to drive 1.5 million operations a second out of a single. Uh, Google Compute host. A single host. A single driving, host. A single VM driving a million and a half operations a second. Wow. That's, and that's, that's pretty crazy. I mean, do you know how, what size that actual VM was? Was it just like two CPU? Uh, no, it was, it was one of the bigger ones. So it was like eight CPUs and like, and like something like 100 gig of memory or something like that. Yeah. But it was, but I mean, if you think about it, how much does that VM actually cost? It costs you like, like a dollar an hour, right? Um, so, so, you can get, so you can get 1.5 million transactions. What was it? A, a second or an hour? A second. So you can get, I don't, I don't math well, but you can get 1.5 million transactions a second times 60 seconds times, you know, whatever it is. So 360 right. uh, seconds worth out of, a, you know, whatever. I'm not mathing anymore. Right. All no, of that for a, for a dollar. So, you know, that's a, that's a pretty, that's yeah. a pretty, that's, that's, um, that's an, that's an inflection point as, you know, as, as, as far as I can yeah. see. Totally. So, so go the, ahead. the people that are using Redis is anyone, any company that you can think of uses Redis, Twitter, Tumblr, Square, Airbnb, GitHub, Trello. They're all using Redis in some way, shape or form. Um, and so like, and that's, this is true of MongoDB and Redis and Cassandra, uh, Redis especially. Um, I feel like I'm a Redis ad right now. Um, <laughs> you sound like one. <laughs> but uh, it's just really easy to use. So, uh, and, and these are all these are all free and open source, or are there paid versions? These are all basically free and open source. You can get 
You can either get a paid version for many of them, um, or you can buy a contract for many of them. Many of them, no matter what, are actually supported by some sort of commercial entity. So, for example, MongoDB is supported by Tengen, right? It's, it is a product of Tengen, and Tengen will sell you support. Um, others give less direct support. For example, uh, the lead developer for Redis is a guy named Salvatore Sanfilippo, um, and he is actually employed by Pivotal, although Pivotal doesn't sell anything Redis-related. Um, so there's all... And then, you know, on sort of the other quote-unquote extreme is something like React, which is pretty much, you know, entirely a commercial product, or, or, or um, MarkLogic, another one, which is an entirely commercial project um, that is not open source at all. Okay, very good. So we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be appropriately uh, kind of wrapping this up if we didn't talk about some of the fun things. You know, is you know when we were kind of prepping for this, one of the one of the things that you know Matt opened my eyes to was all the ways that we're using these kind of um, these kind of NoSQL type applications in I guess products that EMC has or sells and things like that. I, you know, one of the one of the obviously one of my favorite personal products was ECS, which I believe kind of all the all the top end type stuff is run is basically based on Cassandra. Is that correct? Yeah, the the persistent store um, for like uh, metadata and things like that is, is is a Cassandra ring. And when I was uh, when I was talking over, I was just doing a briefing over VC the other day. Um, it turns out that the complete rewrite of Vision to Vision 3.0 and the ability to do the whole top down panorama as it was and see all the different V blocks, all that data is fed into Cassandra and then federated across all the different sites so that they can share that information in one place. And then they put a super cool kind of clear, like a, a, a almost basic text search called Antler, A-N-T-L-R on it to be able to do a search like what is fine WWN, this WWN, it brings up a link to it. You can click on it. It takes you right to there so you can start working on it. Um, so really, I mean, a really neat rewrite that's based on this kind of new modern uh, SQL architecture. Um, and it was, you know, they said we did this because we learned from our mistakes and we wanted to completely start over. And when they did, they based it on Cassandra, which I thought was cool. So uh, are there other things out there that are kind of, I guess, the same basic thing where we're using these, these Reacts and Redis and things that are in, the, that are in our, our, our little federation today that kind of impress you? Um, I'd have to think, I'm not sure of the others off the top of my head. Um, um, yeah, I think, I think those are the, the uh, Viper controller uses Cassandra as well um, for its metadata. Um, I'm not sure of the others off the top of my head. Those, those are the, I think would be the three that I would pick. Whereas Viper SRM, which keeps a lot of data, pretty structured, pretty relational type scenario, its backend is more of a traditional MySQL, if I remember correctly. It, it is, and, and that's because what they need to do is more strongly, um, like, more strongly doing data transformations and data manipulations uh, for that data. They're doing things like roll-ups and, and stuff like that, which necessitates a proper uh, MySQL database or a proper SQL database. Um, I'm not sure that personally I would ever encourage anybody at this point to choose MySQL for anything that they care about, um, but that's just a rant. So that's your that's your glowing that's your glowing uh, review of MySQL. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of MySQL. It's either Postgres or Redis. That that that's Matt's thing. That's what, I'm, Postgres, that's what I'm hearing. If you <laughs> if you care about your data, 
pick uh, pick Postgres. All right. Well, with that uh, sound bite, let's go ahead and shut it down. We've reached the the top of our hour. So, so Mr. Matt Calger, thank you again for for being on the show today and and educating us on things that are not web scale but that are cloud native. Yeah. Uh, things like NoSQL and. Uh, platform three so it was a, a pleasure and honor for us to to have you on the show and uh, with that we're going to close out episode six of the hot aisle my name is brent piatti my name is brian carpenter and thanks for joining with us today and uh, we'll be out there next week so give us a listen thanks everyone <laughs>